Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Something very beautiful and painful happened in late August 2003 at Simpson University and involved a Gregory. See, we are very conditioned to run from pain and to avoid pain because we think it's bad instead of thinking of it as a beautiful warning. Gregory, who grew up in church, thought he knew the Bible. No, you don't understand. Gregory really thought he knew the Bible. He was very confident. I know you guys couldn't see this in my personality at all. This is, this is a stretch for you. But an 18-year-old Gregory was really convinced, not convinced enough to not go to Bible college, like I wanted to learn more, I was hungry, but I thought I had a pretty good start in life until I stepped onto the university campus late August 2003. And I, in my very first two weeks of college education, I went to an intro to the New Testament class. Help me to, let me, let me parenthetically, intro, like the English majors have to take this class, let alone the wannabe scholars who think they're really gonna go far, the 300 and 400 level classes. The intro to New Testament class, and Gregory was front row because he was studious and he wants to get all that he can and saw that his professor, this room held 110, 120 students, because everybody is one of those classes, everybody has to take, casually opened a Greek New Testament. His hand was on the spine. I could only see part of the word, and I could only see it because I was sitting in the front row. So he wasn't like ostentatiously showing off. He opened it and read to us in perfect English the passage and closed it and set it back down and kept teaching And that's when I knew, oh, Gregory, <laughs> you don't know very much. Oh, no, it got worse. Don't worry. A few days later, I went to my intro to the Old Testament class, the Old Testament class that English majors have to take. Everybody's got to take this class. And in the second class, there was an intro, kind of boring administrative. The second class, where my Old Testament professor was really getting into, he kind of lost his mind in a good way. Wanting to share something to us from Isaiah 11.1, 1, a shoot rises up from the stump of Jesse. I didn't know much about Isaiah. I knew one or two passages that get quoted every Christmas. That's about all I know about Isaiah. But he went on a riff for the next 20 minutes off of Isaiah 11.1 1, with tears streaming down his face, the most beautiful, poignant gospel of Jesus Christ that I'd ever heard in my life out of an Old Testament text. And 18-year-old Gregory is going, I don't know anything about the Old Testament. Because that was a better gospel plea than what I've just about heard the rest of my life from the New Testament. Thinking that you know something when you don't 
Could that be a reason that we micromanage God and we tell him how to run his world? Could that be one reason? God, I'm pretty smart, I know some stuff. I bet you there are a thousand other reasons. Introduce yourself to a couple of folks nearby you and wrestle with this one together. What are some possible reasons that we tell God how to do things? I'll give you 90 seconds. Go ahead and chat with some friends. Introduce yourself. All right. From your group, I'm going to shout out some possible reasons. What did you guys talk about? We are our own God. Woo, boy. Or let me say the exact same thing a different way. I am my own God so that I can do it my way. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? What are some other possible reasons we tell God how to do things? That's right. Forgot that God loves you. Forgot that his discipline is out of his love. Arrogance and pride. Yeah. Not enough faith. Huh? I know better. Yeah. Hopefully. Pharaoh never found out. Yeah, anxiety over what seems to be perhaps the results, the current situation, worried. Is this how it's going to stay? Is it going to be resolved? Is it going to be fixed? Impatience. Impatience. God should do it on my timetable. Woo! Uh So that's a judgment call, right? How much, yeah, how, how how much parenting is helping the child figure out the difference between a want and a need. I can't parent anymore without feeling like I'm hearing a sermon from God off of my lips. Greg, you're 38 and you still can't figure out your wants and needs. I'm sorry. (laughs) Any other reasons before we move on? Why we would tell God how to do things. Impatience. Control. Ooh. Instant gratification. Which, maybe this is what you're saying, maybe this isn't. But when, when our culture conditions us to have things a certain way, and then we meet Jesus, it's going to be hard every time Jesus doesn't meet our cultural assumptions, isn't it? Every single time. Because our culture is the lens through which we look at the world and then following Jesus for the rest of our lives, he is now saying, no, you take my word and you use that as the lens. And your world got flipped upside down by following Jesus. Upside down. And he's not even apologizing. Jesus, this is really hard, totally rethinking my thinking. Yeah. And? Jesus would say, hey, look, your old thinking was leading to death. So what you meant to say was thank you. (laughs) Right? The hard work of being transformed by the renewing of our mind, the hard work of new passions, the hard work of new words, the hard work of new actions. Well, this is is kingdom behavior. You're alive now. This muscle hurts. You've been dead your entire life. 
All of your muscles are atrophied. Your love muscle, mercy, grace, all of these muscles are atrophied. You've never used them in a spirit-filled way before. That was for free. Let's move on to the real sermon. Note takers, grab your pen. God's wisdom, God's power, God's will determine how and when he works. Did that hurt? If it didn't hurt, you got to think it through a second time. I would have said, nobody asked you, but then I would get an angry email. His wisdom, his power. Acts 2, 2 through 4. Uh, Let's start at verse 1 again. So we're still in Pentecost. We're grabbing three takeaways that I haven't preached on yet. On the day of Pentecost, so this is five weeks after the Day of Atonement. This is after Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, raised again. Uh, ascended into heaven 40 days after that. So 10 more days pass. All the believers are meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. If you read the dead guys, everybody calls them commentators. I don't think that's nearly as exciting. The dead people who wrote really big books with really big words, they all point out, I don't know the word, but in Greek, the Luke's use of time, both in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, are very purposeful from, from what I read. Suddenly really does matter. This word matters. And, and what we're supposed to be able to draw from it at the bare minimum is that the apostles were obeying Jesus who said, stay here and wait. Do not leave the city. Wait for my Holy Spirit. And outside of their control and outside of their exact expectation, they had a general expectation or maybe another way of saying it, when the Father and the Son decided, they sent the Holy Spirit. When God decided, God act, acted. Okay? And we've seen this all throughout Scripture. Pentecost is not the first time. When God decided, God acted. We see God's wisdom in filling his church at this exact point. Could we have planned... Alexander the Great, making a big name for himself, beating his chest, was going to spread Hellenistic culture and the Greek language on a, around a long area of space. The Romans were going to come in and build a bunch of roads and one governing system. This little spot, this armpit of an empire, was better equipped for a message to go out than at any place on earth had ever been to that point. There was no internet. There was no telegraph. There was no newspaper. There were no books. There were roads. Why were there roads? Because of Rome. So when we see evil empires growing in strength, let us not think that God's out of control. We can see God's wisdom for manifesting, being born of a virgin, living a perfect life that I should have lived but didn't, dying the death that I deserve but don't now have to die being raised and telling his church, I'm gonna give you your Holy Spirit, my Holy Spirit so you can tell the world that I love them as well through this cross. And he does this at a time far beyond your wisdom or mine. We see his power is evident in the miraculous hearing of the praises of God. He doesn't just pour out his Holy Spirit at a specific time, but he uses signs and wonders to draw everybody's attention. Wait, why do we hear everybody praising God in their own languages. These are Galileans. These are podunk, backwoods. There's no way these guys went to school. They're not 
I mean, if they're bilingual, maybe they speak, you know, Aramaic and Greek, but there's no way. I'm from Babylon. I'm from Egypt. I'm from Greece. Uh, you know, all these places, Greek they would have, but other places, they're listed in 17 different uh, people groups that were hearing the praises of God in their own language. So the Holy Spirit poured out power to show not, God's not just wiser than us, he is stronger, he's demanding attention so that his gospel is proclaimed by Peter here in the sermon next week. And his will, and this is the one that we don't like the most, his will, God has a will. We spend so much energy on our will we spend a lot of energy on what we want and when we want it, how we want it. It was just reflected in some of you guys' answers. Um, this is how it can sound sometimes in modern Christianity. God doesn't do it that way. Which we used our big words last week. This is an underrealized eschatology. You look at the book of Acts with kind of a sigh and your shoulders shrump and you go, oh, I wish God did cool things like that. I, I, I wish, I wish that would be cool. Or an overrealized eschatology. God always does it that way. Always, 100% of the time. Is a sovereign God interested in a little peon like you or me telling him how he has to do it? Does your parenting or grandparenting fit into either of these two boxes? So, you're walking into Macy's circa 2010. And the lady up front is very nice. She's paid maybe $17 an hour at best. And her boss's boss has never met the CEO of Macy's. Do you understand what I'm saying? Her boss's boss has never met the head of the company. But her boss's boss's boss might have. And you are striking up a conversation with she's very nice, and you say, hey, so Macy's kind of has this middle-cost brand. You've got Nordstrom getting putting more pressure on you from the high end and the more expensive ticket stuff and the lower end, you guys are getting killed by Old Navy and by Amazon starting to sell clothing. How are you guys going to survive? What are you going to do? And this very nice lady would be totally correct to say, um, that's above my pay grade. In fact, the CEO makes three or four million dollars a year to lose sleep over questions like that. Anybody here ever been a frontline employee and you were a part of a company that had big problems and you were thrilled? Those problems weren't really your problems? Anybody? Right. Gee, I wish I was back in the army, right? One of the key lines, the fun lines of, gee, I wish I was back in the army, is there's always somebody else higher up that I can pass the buck. If you don't know what I'm talking about right now, your soul is darkened. Uh, you need to go watch White Christmas this December. Or if you really want some happiness, watch it in June, just because. There are problems that are yours based on your authority and your power. Come on, guys, you know where I'm going with this. Don't act surprised. And there are problems that are not your problems because of how low on the totem pole you are. 
Wasn't it the psalmist who said, man, rather than a thousand days of life somewhere else, I'd rather just be the doorman in the kingdom of my father. Oh, man, wouldn't it be good to just kind of be a nobody? The really big problems of like heaven and hell and eternity, the rising and falling of nations, that's, sorry guys, that's above my pay grade. It's above your pay grade. We can sleep better knowing what's our pay grade and what's not. So let's switch analogies to the same idea. Here's your next step, write this in. Christian, refuse to be a backseat driver toward God. Just refuse. If you're not a Christian, this is really important to you too. In our culture right now, if you're exploring faith, one of the biggest things that we are throwing up right now as barriers to Christianity, in its essence, if we look at it, is, well, he keeps telling me what to do. Jesus keeps claiming authority. And we tend to shoot the messenger. We tend to go, oh, Christians believe this. Don't worry about Christians. Open the book and look at the Savior. He believes all kinds of offensive things. Jesus, I don't know if you guys know, it doesn't even matter which gospel you pick. Pick one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and ask yourself this question as you read. Do people keep coming up to Jesus to tell, them, tell him what their self-chosen identity is, or does he say, this is who you are now? Our culture is conditioned to think the best life we could possibly live is one where I have the autonomy to give myself identity. And Jesus is saying, you guys have been giving yourselves identity since Genesis 3, and it's a mess. It's a colossal mess. So Jesus came, and by the way, with the same humility, Emmanuel, God with us, he came with a name, a mission, an identity from his father. He didn't choose his own identity. So who do we think we are? Right? Jesus makes big, bold claims that he will be Lord, not only our Savior. Wash away sins? Absolutely. But I own you. I don't like the slave language. You would like the slave language if you knew that your master loved you more than he loves life itself. We don't have a rubric for that. See, I grew up, I watched Roots, right? We have an 18th and 19th century transatlantic slave trade imagery of what a lord and a serf or a, a master and a servant, and all of that is so broken and so perverse because well, guess what? Everybody involved was a sinner, what if you got sold into slavery and your owner could not sin? We don't even have a box for that. What if your owner didn't just love, but he was love? We don't have a box for that. We're running away from Zeus when in fact the God who's offering himself to us is way different. We're running away from an angry, imaginary God. He's not real. The actual God loved us so much he went to a cross for us. Why are we telling him how to run the show? And what's worse, I've been following Jesus for over 30 years and I keep telling him what to do. Oh, I'll become a Christian and that'll make it better. I won't be backseat driving anymore. Nope. Nope. 
No, you'll come to Jesus and you'll be able to trust him this much, but it's 100% more than you trusted him five minutes ago. And after 10 years of fighting, you'll, love, you'll trust him this much and you'll deal with the frustration of God. Why don't I trust you in all things? And after 30 years of fighting, you'll trust him this much, but he who began a good work in you is faithful and just to complete it. It broke my heart. About six or seven years ago, John Piper, who at the time was 71 years old, pastor for many years at Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis, he said, hey, what's the one thing that now that you've gotten into your 70s that has surprised you? And I was hoping for something positive. No. He says, what's been surprising is I just thought I would be farther along in my walk with God. Oh, that deflated me. But does that help us to not judge ourselves when the journey is painfully slow? Second takeaway from Pentecost. So first, his wisdom, power, and will determine how and when he works. We saw that. And this is tragic as well. A miracle, oh, that was, I shouldn't say as well. That was awesome. This one's tragic. A miracle is not enough for some to trust what God says. Did you know that? Look at verse 13. So 17, no fewer than 17 different people groups just heard the praises of God in their own languages. Verse 13, but others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying they're just drunk, that's all. The miracle that started the church, those in verse 12 are perplexed in a good way, Those in verse 13, they take their perplexion and go, this is stupid, they're drunk. Again, it is our Western culture that has us thinking. I grew up, and it's probably worse now, but 20 years ago, History Channel would regularly run exposés on the plagues of Egypt. And the expose, just like Satan, he starts with questions. He's not going to straight up throw the lie at you. He's just going to start a I just want to start a conversation. Let's talk. Let's get some Starbucks. Let's, I don't know. Aren't we open to some ideas? I mean, yeah, God's saying he's in charge of everything, but maybe there's some other ideas. <laughs> the History Channel started, were the plagues of Egypt really miraculous of God? Or were there other reasons? Like, come on, you had to be born yesterday to not know where this is going. And in the darkness, well, okay, there was a volcano in Greece that went off. Okay. Doesn't explain why you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, but whatever. And, and, there, and there was a, a localized flood that did this. All right. And there was a, no joke, there was a particular type of cricket that was breeding, and they breed in the water, and it turns the water red. So it wasn't blood, it was cricket waste. Then how come the, their magicians could repeat it? Whatever. It was just, uh. Why? Because our culture loves to hide behind the assumption that it can't be true unless I can put it under a microscope. It can't be true unless I can see it with a telescope. And that's so, so silly because this same person who hides behind this, ask them if they want to believe in something like justice 
And they'll go, oh yeah, absolutely, that was wrong. It happened in the evening news. That was wrong. That was so evil. That has to be stopped. And I'm going to go, how am I going to put your vision of justice under a microscope or in front of a telescope? Do you believe in love? Oh, absolutely, I believe in love. Yeah, you love your wife? Yeah, I love, I love my wife very much. Okay, how, how are we going to put that love under a microscope? This is all we need is the bohemian philosophy of, of the summer of love, 1900. Freedom, beauty, truth, love. None of them fit under a microscope. Everybody wants them to exist. So, let's not think this is new. The human being can see the impossible in front of their face and go, nah. Because it's not rational, it's sin. I want God to not exist. Some examples, they're not up on the screen. Pharaoh hardened by plague instead of humbled in the book of Exodus. The Pharisees, he casts out demons by the power of demons. Anybody could, could break apart the logic of that. A fifth grader could easily dissect that one. Peter doubting Jesus, are you ready? While Peter is walking on water. He's already walking on water, and that's when his faith falters and he starts to say, um, Peter, he's already allowing you. Okay. The ascension. At the ascension, Scripture says, but some of them doubted. While Jesus is floating up into heaven, and there are guys going, hmm, I don't know. I don't know. Abraham to the rich man, even if someone came back from the dead, your brothers will not believe. Guys, this is heartbreaking. It's exemplified in the text, and it is mission critical for those of us who love Jesus to wrap our hearts around this. The text, Romans 1.16, tells us that the good news about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on the cross, that is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes, and you and I think we're gonna talk somebody into the kingdom. I'm gonna rationalize this person. I'm gonna answer all their questions, and that's gonna help them become a Christian. Do you think the Apostle Peter got all his questions answered and then followed Jesus? What about James? Huh? What about Bartholomew? What about Thomas? Or, I don't know, you? This is silly. You follow Jesus because he's answered the only question that really mattered. Where is true life found? And you go, it's a person. It's not a piece of knowledge, it's a person. I'm following him. Ride or die, I'm following him. Why? Uh, he just raised a guy from the dead. The discussion's over. Discussion's over. I don't understand it. I may live my whole life not understanding it. What I know is that I was blind and now I see. That's what I know. This is why Christians... You be a Christian and be really emphatic and tell everybody you know about Jesus and, and then they throw their questions at you and you're like, I don't know. What I know is that I was blind and now I see. That's what I know. Theologian, I am not. I am a Samaritan woman of ill repute and I'm gonna tell hundreds of people about Jesus in the first 30 minutes that I've known him. Anybody here beating that woman's record? Anybody beat her record? No? Okay, I haven't. Here's a call to action. 
Trust God by telling people about Jesus while refusing to worry. These two actions have to happen at the same time. I'm not going to worry about the results because that would be taking on God's, right? We throw seed, we water seed, and only God brings the growth, 1 Corinthians 3. Trust God by doing these two things at the same time. Tell people about Jesus. It's a bottle on the banner, so therefore you have to do it. Sign on the bottle line in blood, and now you have to do everything on the banners. Tell people about Jesus while refusing to worry. That doesn't mean laissez-faire like you don't pray like the Dickens. You pray like the Dickens for God to do his part, but you don't worry, right? Those are not the same. In fact, prayer is, I have this burden on me, and Jesus, not only am I not doing him dirty by handing it to him, I'm giving him a compliment by handing that big burden. When I take a 50-pound weight that I'm you know, all really struggling, and I hand it to a dude who's ripped with all these muscles, that's a compliment. This is easy for you. You take it. That's a compliment, not a burden. Again, this is not in the notes. Um, let me do this real quick. The early church, roll with me here. The early church didn't stop telling people about Jesus because some around them had hard hearts. Historical fact, as you read the book of Acts, did they encounter opposition and they just quit? Acts chapter one, Acts chapter two, Acts chapter, oh, opposition. It's a three chapter book. No, didn't happen, right? The folks that did receive the gospel, they told others and some of them rejected and some of them received and they told others and they told others who told somebody who told somebody who told you. Aren't you so glad the early church didn't quit? I am. By way of illustration, let me show you about the beautiful wildflowers that I'm growing in my backyard. You guys laughed at my amazing skill, and it kind of hurts my feelings. I'm not going to lie. So, a few weeks ago, yes, it's overrun by grass and weeds back behind that mow strip, and I, I tore it up real good. I soaked it, tore it up, soaked it again, and I seeded this thing like no other with wildflower seed that I got at Lowe's. And you can't see it in this picture, but there are a number of them just starting to pop, just the, just the leaves. And I'm hoping, against all hope, that maybe in a couple more weeks, even if there's still a bunch of weeds, they'll be prettier. Because there'll be a diversity of flowers growing up. I mean, Jesus said, hey, when you know there's good seed and bad seed, and say, don't rip them out now, you'll rip out the weeds. So I'm learning my gardening from Jesus, like every good Christian. I'm leaving it, I'm still watering it, okay? And I know that the weeds are loving it, but I'm trusting that something beautiful is in there as well, okay? I am simultaneously, I am watering, knowing that water is going for something I want and something I don't want with a plan that later maybe I'll carefully pick out the weeds, Brothers and sisters, this is God-sized. Jesus said that his father was going to carefully sort out what was wheat and what was weeds, and he would do it at the end of time. That is God-sized. It's not mine. 
it's not mine. You would not be able to sleep at night if it was up to you to save somebody. You'd pull your, Dennis wouldn't pull his hair out. The rest of us would pull our hair out (laughs) trying to figure out how do I save this person. Like you could try to climb up on a cross, right? I've got to die for their sins, but you don't have a righteousness to offer them that Jesus did. It's, it's not yours. It's above your pay grade. And I'm already out of time. So we're going to lightning fast this third takeaway from Pentecost. Experiencing the Holy Spirit can be intensely emotional, and yet still the Christian retains self-control. Those of you guys who've been in church for a while, you know self-control is one of the things Paul gives us as a mark of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. And so these folks are filled with the Holy Spirit, And they are completely in control of themselves doing something that is emotionally overwhelming, dramatic. They've never experienced it before. And they're speaking perfectly languages or they're speaking in their own language and and the Spirit is allowing others to hear it. Scholars don't know which miracle it was, but it was a miracle nonetheless. Excuse me. Here's how I wrote it in my notes. There are two mistakes we make a lot of times related to emotion and feeling related to God. One is ignoring emotion, my old habit, or worshiping. Anybody here been to a concert where you realized, this, a lot of people were talking about this with Coldplay 15 years ago, where they said, this is what sociologists write about, that in the era of the Beach Boys, we tended to worship the artist. They were on stage and wow, uh, this is so great. They're awesome, they're wonderful, I want their poster. I'm gonna jump on the car when Elvis is trying to drive away. Sociologists say that by the 2000s and 2010s, culture had so shifted, and part of their rationale for why they said this was the number of people at concerts with closed eyes for most of the songs, with eyes closed. They said that Western culture had evolved to the point where we're now worshiping the experience, not the band. Worshiping the feeling. I, I, I feel good during this song, or I feel empowered, or my anger is given vent because uh, I'm at a Limp Bizkit concert or what have you. It's giving vent to certain emotions. To ignore your emotions would be a huge mistake because God is an emotional being, right? Anybody read the Bible? Read the Psalms? God gets angry at things. He's heartbroken at things. He's overjoyed at things, right? And we are made in his image. So we don't want to ignore emotion. Neither do we want to worship the feeling. Worshiping the feeling is broken beyond broken. So, this is my house. You guys keep laughing, and I keep getting my feelings hurt. Three years ago, my therapist said, hey, Greg, I want you to imagine something. You've lived in the same house your entire life, and one day you're in the kitchen, and you see a door that you have never seen before, even though you lived in this house your entire life, and you have no idea what's going on, and you open the door and to find out that there's, there are rooms upon rooms upon rooms, half the house you've never even been in. He said, Greg, you know exactly what you think about every situation you've ever been in your life. You have no idea what you feel about all the situations you've been through in your life. You're gonna have to resort everything you've been through at that time point for 35 years. You're gonna have to resort everything because half the house is yours. God gave this to you. You're an emotional being too and you just don't have access to it. So my encouragement to you 
if you love Jesus. When you read scripture, feel the passage in addition to thinking about it. I want to keep bringing up The Chosen because this show really is amazing. When you hear people talk to you about a new episode of The Chosen, of this, they're almost always telling you about the emotional response that was elicited. But guess what? People put a ton of talent and effort into illustrating the scripture for you to help you feel that feeling as well as for your head to get knowledge in it. That's very labor-intensive Bible teaching. It's beautiful. I hope you go watch it. But it takes a lot of work. And there is not, to my knowledge, there is not somebody right there now making a TV show for every single piece of scripture to help you get all of God's word, right? So praise the Lord that show exists. But when we read scripture, let me encourage you. What do I think about the text? More importantly, what does God think about what he's saying or what he's doing? What emotion is God communicating, if any? What emotion are the characters experiencing? What emotion, if any, is God eliciting from me? Does he want me to be angry at what he's angry at in this text? Guys, we, don't, we hate anger so much. This is why we don't read the minor prophets. And yet the current cultural zeitgeist is this idea that I can chase after justice. We, the church, just need to read the minor prophets more and we'll have answers especially for millennials and Gen Z. We're gonna have answers for them if we see that God is deeply angry at some of the same broken stuff that 20-year-olds are angry at. The 20-year-old's not necessarily wrong. They just don't know that their emotion and God's emotion are actually lined up. I wanna encourage you, when you study the scriptures, think through the lens of emotion as well. Gone long, I wanna leave you with a quote from our uh, brother. Sorry, overly emotional. Uh, Tim Keller might be the second most influential man in my life when it comes to Bible teaching. And he just went to be with Jesus a couple weeks ago. And uh, this is what he said. Romans tells me how to think about God. The Psalms tell me how to feel about him. So if you're not sure what to read next in your daily Bible reading, if you're more of a heart-first person and you're good with emotions, I want to point you toward Romans. If you're more like me and you think your thoughts, I want to point you toward the Psalms. Lord Jesus, help us to grasp every beautiful blessing out of Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit, take us where you want us to go. Make us joyfully uh, obedient, joyfully submissive to everything you're leading us toward because we want to be a people, God, that proclaims your gospel fearful, uh, fearlessly to a culture that needs you deeply. Oh, God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit leads us into all of the truth. We'd be so lost on our own. We were so lost on our own. Lead us, God, because you are the good shepherd. Lead us because your sheep know your voice. God, forgive us when we rebel and fight for control. God, make foundation exactly the family that you want us to be. And bring people here next week to hear the gospel who right now absolutely have zero intention of ever darkening the door of a church. By your power and by your mercy, we ask this in the name of Jesus and foundation said, amen. Love you guys.
Have a great week.